Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio. Today in the show, we're going to be talking a little about foliar wheat diseases. If you've got any questions for us about that or anything going on in your farm, you can certainly give us a call. Our phone lines will be open throughout the show today. The number is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. You could also email us, radio at agphd.com, or send us a note on X, AgPhD Media, or Brian Hefty. All right, so when it comes to foliar wheat diseases... We talk about this on the show from time to time, and I just say there are three main timings when you want to consider spraying. Herbicide timing, which, quite frankly, a lot of people we work with do. In other words, you use a low rate, usually a half rate, because the plants are small. You can get by with that. It works fine. A low rate of fungicide together with your herbicide, foliar, and it works pretty well. You don't have to make an extra trip across the field. So I love that part. And there are a lot of early season diseases. Plus, we just want general plant health. So that's a really good timing. The other timing that's pretty popular is heading timing. So right when the head comes out, and especially once it starts, just as it's starting to flower, that's about when you want to spray. There are some really good products out there. Mervis Ace is great. We like Presaro Pro even a little bit better. But if you say, well, I don't want to spend 10 or 15 bucks, I want to go cheap. Okay, well, generic Tebiconazole or old Folicure is like $2 an acre. So you got a super cheap option and you got some great options that, quite frankly, are a lot better on disease control. Anyway, there are a lot of people that do the heading timing. Well, the timing that actually usually is the best in terms of yield is flag leaf. And I get it. You're going to have to make an extra trip. You may not have done this before. But I'd encourage you to at least consider this. When your flag leaf comes out, go spray fungicide. And I know you're going to tell me, well, it's not very long and the head's going to come out. Why don't I just wait? Here's why. Number one, you get the most yield, usually. Number two, because that flag leaf is the most important leaf on the wheat plant. You want to keep that thing as clean as possible. Even though I know you're going to be back probably in a couple weeks to spray it heading, you still want to try spraying that flag leaf. So, my advice is I would try spraying half a field, two or three half fields, something like that, and see what you see for a difference on your farm. But I can just tell you that flag leaf timing usually works out the best. And again, the reason why is because that flag leaf is the most important leaf on the wheat plant. I'll also say when it comes to foliar wheat disease applications, so fungicide applications, it's really important that you use the right product at the right timing. In other words, the, and the main thing really here is just simply don't spray anything that's got a strobe or strobilurin chemical family at heading timing. That's the biggest thing because then we see more toxin issues. We see more uh, Don, basically. So we just don't want to have that. Otherwise, there are a lot of fungicides, and we're going to talk about those throughout the show today. But right now, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's the mailbag! All right, first, actually, comment just comes in from Corey. We were talking about crop residue and managing crop residue recently on the show. And Corey just said, yeah, we run a vertical till machine after harvest. It really helps break down the corn stalks faster for us. Uh, Corey, I'd agree with that. 
for one thing, you're chopping stuff up. Number two, you're throwing more dirt with it, and that gets more enzymes in there, makes things break down a little bit faster. So even though you're not doing deep tillage or anything like that, just getting a little bit of dirt together with the residue absolutely makes a difference. All right, Tom writes in and says, what is base saturation and what does it tell us on a soil test? Tom, the base saturation is really this. It's a measure of balance of nutrients in your soil. So rather than looking at parts per million on its own, and you can certainly do that, but we're interested in this, and, and here's why. Because calcium, magnesium, and potassium are three of the biggest nutrient needs for your soil and for your crop. And we want to see how those are in balance with sodium and with hydrogen as well. And so just last week, I was doing a bunch of meetings with farmers in North Dakota, and I was showing them some stats that we've compiled over the last many years on tens of thousands of data points showing that magnesium and potassium that ratio is really important. So you could look at that specifically if you want to and say, all right, let's compare magnesium to potassium. Well, then we're going to take it a step further and we're going to look at calcium magnesium. Then we're going to look at calcium potassium. And then we're going to look at, you see where I'm going with this. With base saturation, it's one thing. It's a measure of these five different nutrients that I just mentioned and the ratio of them to each other. So now we can say, Okay, with potassium, I'd like that to be in the 4% to 8% range. With magnesium, ideally, I'd like that in the 12% to 20% range. With calcium, I'd like that 65 to 75%, maybe 80 on the outside end, but things like that. And if we shoot for that, it's a little simpler way to get us the right ratio. And so I, I'm, I got some soil tests sitting in front of me that hopefully we'll get the chance to talk about later in the show. And when... We see fields that have really high levels of calcium and really high levels of magnesium. Very often, people will say to us, well, the lab or my advisor tells me 150 to 200 parts per million on potassium should be good. I should have enough there for my crop. All right, theoretically, you should. But the problem is, for example, magnesium and potassium compete against each other. I can show you in tissue tests. When we really load up the soil with potassium, guess what? less magnesium gets in. When we have really high levels of magnesium and low potassium, or even 150, 200 parts per million of potassium that a lot of people would say is enough, I can show you real fast. It doesn't get into the plant. It's not there in the tissue. You've got to have those things in ratio in the soil. Otherwise, you have major issues. So that's what base saturation is about. I know it sounds complicated when I say we want to get your nutrients in balance in the soil. But then when you look at the base saturation, now that's a much simpler way to talk about balance. Thanks for the question. Appreciate that, Tom. All right, stay tuned. On our show today, we are going to talk a little about foliar wheat diseases and some fungicides that can be used in wheat and many other crops. Stay tuned. This is Ag PhD Radio. Take your tillage to the next level with the Insight Universal Tillage Tool from McFarland Ag. With more adjustability and flexibility, the Insight is the ultimate one-pass tillage tool. Visit McFarlandAg.com to find your closest dealer. At Commodity Classic, you'll connect with farmers from around the world as we explore new frontiers in agriculture. Join us in Houston February 28th through March 2nd, 2024. Houston, we have no problem. Discover more at CommodityClassic.com. 
The greatest herbicide of all time earned its title by defending your soybean fields. Authority Supreme Herbicide's low-use rate formula delivers longer-lasting control of broadleaf weeds and grasses, providing you with the best-in-class combination of Group 14 PPO herbicide sulfentrazone and Class 15 molecule pyroxysulfone that outlasts the competition. We're Authority Supreme Herbicide from FMC, and we play to win. Learn more at authoritysupreme.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions. Get the most from every acre on your farm by attending Ag PhD's workshops and clinics this winter. I'm Darren Hefty. My brother Brian and I are hosting several free workshops throughout January and February, including agronomy workshops in corn and soybeans, a soils clinic, and a whole day devoted to natural and biological products. We have a lot of great information and we can't wait to share it with you. Best of all, these events are free, so be sure to check them out. Register today at agphd.com. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here, live in the Morton studio. Today on the show, we're talking about foliar wheat diseases. And first on the show, we got our friend Lee Lubers with us. He is based in South Dakota and farms there. Hey, Lee, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. All right, so you've been raising wheat for, I assume, pretty much your whole life. What can you tell us about the difference today with wheat diseases versus maybe 10 or 20 to year, 20 years ago? I mean, are you seeing more or less? Are you seeing different diseases? How have things changed over time? Uh, as we've increased our yields, uh, it goes uh, kind of hand in hand. As you increase the positive, you amplify potential negatives. So we're actually dealing with more disease pressure than we did 10 to 15 years ago but luckily, we have multi-mode fungicides now, so we're able to handle that pressure a lot better. So in terms of fungicide use on your farm, seed treatment, foliar, what, what are you doing for fungicide use? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it starts uh, from the seed, and you go right from there right up to flowering, and uh you know, we used to always think that, uh, you know, foliar wheat diseases would just fungicide handle it that way. Well, uh, the better job that we do on fertility and bringing up our copper levels, that's helping us too. And then uh, even insect pressure. Uh, barley yellow dwarf is viral, so we have to be proactive with our insecticide pass so we don't let the aphids vector that disease into our plants. So how often are you out scouting in your wheat fields to monitor for the bugs like you talked about? Because, I mean, obviously, and we talk about this all time, all the time in the show, with diseases, you got to spray in advance. But bugs, you got to scout, see if they're there, and then treat. So how often are bugs showing up, and how often are you scouting? You're just staying on it. It's, it's once, twice a week, minimum. Mm-hmm. So... 
in terms of getting aphids under control, Lore's ban a couple years ago got banned. Sounds like it's going to come back now. But what are you using to get those things controlled? A lot of people have been disappointed they couldn't use Lore's ban. What what alternative products have you been spraying in your farm? We've had good luck with just uh, standard insecticide, just going for the flash kill. Uh, we've been having pretty good luck. Uh, or we just added in a lot of times when we're doing herbicide pass, it's a standard practice. Yeah. Uh, right away in the spring, help uh, break that, you know, break the deal so it doesn't happen. Get ahead of it because once your plant is infected, you can't catch up on it. Right. So just a basic pyrethroid then is what you're saying. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah. Very reasonable cost. It, it's one of the cheapest things that we can put in the tank. Oh, I think we just lost Lee there. Uh, anyway, hopefully we can get Lee back on here. But I, I I, agree with Lee in what he just said there. It's one of the least expensive things you can put in. A cheap pyrethroid only costs a couple of bucks. So you're not going to invest a whole lot of dollars. But typically we do see pretty good returns on that. I guess the big thing is, and like I mentioned, Scouting, 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 scouting. If you don't scout, then you have no idea what's out there. And it's funny, a lot of times we talk about this when we're doing meetings and stuff, and I'll have a sweep net along, and I just say, guys, this is one of the most valuable tools on your farm. Uh, if you can, if you, right before you spray anything on your farm, make sure you're running that sweep net, but just on a regular basis, like Lee was talking about every, you know, once a week, twice a week, whatever, uh, be out there with that sweep net and look for bugs. That That's the, the biggest factor that I see in a lot of cases is guys have a problem. Farmers have a problem, but they just don't know that that problem is out there. Wouldn't you say Lee? Uh, absolutely. Uh, how you increase yields is by being proactive, not reactive. Yeah, and I, I think it, just paying attention to the little details, because it doesn't seem like much when you get a few aphids out in your field. But you're absolutely right. It's not really the feeding so much that's the problem. I mean, I should say the uh, leaf reduction. It's the fact that you end up with disease in your plant. Either it opens it up for disease or it vectors a disease. So that's the real problem with that. Absolutely. All right. So any last comments you got for us, Lee, in terms of fungicide use on your farm and just foliar wheat diseases in general? Uh, fungicide use is a common practice in our farm, and the fungicides that we use just keep getting better. Yeah. Yep. I agree. And then the combinations are nice too, because as prices have come down, you see more premixes. So getting two and three modes of action with fungicides is real common. Well, we've been talking with Lee Lubers, fantastic farmer from the state of South Dakota. Lee, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. Hey, anytime. All right, let's go next to uh, Bruce Stewart with FMC. Bruce, how are you today? Hey, doing great. How about still? Excellent. All right, so we're talking about foliar wheat diseases. Um, where does that conversation usually go when a farmer says, all right, Bruce, help me out. I'm concerned about foliar wheat diseases on my farm. When should I be scouting? What should I be looking for? Yeah, I, I wish more uh, growers ask those questions. And, you know, most of them are probably focused more on that flag leaf application and and not so much at green up, but... Uh, you know, uh, we've we've seen that the green up application 
and timing is uh, can really knock down diseases and make that flag leaf application even uh, stronger. But uh, you know, I guess the diseases that we have here in the Midwest are kind of those earlier diseases are like powdery mildew, septoria, leaf blots, and tan spot, and then we kind of get into those stripe rust and leaf rust diseases more at that flag leaf, not to say you can't get them earlier on, but, uh, you know, those are, are, are uh, the important ones that I can think of here in the Midwest. Yeah, I'm with you. See, in my geography, I don't get a lot of people who want to spray at flag leaf. They usually like to throw the fungicide in with the herbicide just because it saves them a trip. They, uh, a lot of times, are running lower rates and things like that. So, uh, anyway, let's talk specifically about fungicides because with FMC, you have a number of different products there. What's kind of the go-to product at that flag leaf timing? What, what's the best one you have at FMC? Well, probably the most effective one we have is would be Top Guard EQ, and it contains flutriafol, which is uh, really the most systemic and that kind of long-lasting triazole. And then you've got azoxystrobin in there. Uh, that brings a lot, I think, for even rust and just overall plant health and, and things. And, and uh, that that's a real strong one. And, you know, been kind of here in the Midwest for 30, 40 years working with fungicides and wheat. You know, a lot of it, uh, most wheat farmers are pretty cost sensitive. And, you know, we also have just uh, plain top guard, too, that does a good job if it's, a you know, not a real heavy uh, disease year and c- can do a good uh, good effective job and you know we've also brought in oh, uh, adastrio that's our new three-way fungicide uh, that will be uh, or is labeled on on wheat and it contains kind of those same actives that's in top guard eq which is flutriafol the triazole the zoxystrobin the strobilurin chemistry and then uh, sdhi chemistry which is fluendapir so kind of a three-way mix but if i had to pick one from a cost and effective standpoint, you know, that top guard EQ at about five ounces really does a nice job. So on our farm, we use a lot of Lacento in corn and soybeans. Why the top guard EQ instead of the Lacento? You've got the triazole in there either way in the same one. The only difference is you've got the SDH and, and SDHI with Lacento, and you've got a strobe with the top guard EQ. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've, I guess, probably more marketing uh, standpoint, you know, we've kind of moving Lacento more into that soybean acre where we see it does a good job on frog eye leaf spot and other diseases that are in soybeans. And then we're going to kind of move Adastrio over into corn. Uh, and, and then, uh, and i tell you the truth. I mean, I've looked at a lot of years worth of data. I mean, that top guard EQ usually is the top performer uh, even against Lacento in that weed acre. Yeah, um, and the the thing uh, that I like is just that the plant health benefits that you talked about, especially when you are fairly early on herbicide timing or flag leaf timing. Hey, Bruce, uh, thanks a lot for being on the show today. Really appreciate your insight. Stay tuned. This is Ag PhD Radio. Good morning and hallelujah! My spray and pray days are over! What's with Randy? Oh, he's just amped. Weed field heaven! Amped? Yeah, he ordered that new Battalion Amp herbicide from UPL. They're calling it the new gold standard. This is the greatest day in herbicidal history! So, how can I get amped? 
just go to battalionmap.com. It's going to be a good year! Always read and follow label directions. Control the toughest weeds with overlapping residuals. Lock in the longest-lasting control for your soybean fields. A pre-emergence application of an authority brand herbicide plus a post-application of Anthem Max herbicide establishes the overlapping residual control key to safeguarding your soybean seasons. This pairing is a heavy-duty economical strategy against Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, Kochia, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or lockin.ag.fmc.com today. Always read and follow all label directions. Win the war against weeds in your soybean fields with fierce herbicides from Valent USA. With three different formulations and multiple modes of action, you're sure to find the right fierce product to protect your operation from tough weeds like Palmer Amaranth and Waterhemp. Give your soybeans a strong, clean start with up to eight weeks of residual control with the powerful pre-emergence protection of fierce herbicide. Ask your local retailer or visit valent.com fierce to find the right fierce formulation for you. Always read and follow label instructions. Effortlessly manage your farm fertility with Verify. Verify takes yield data directly from your combine and instantly generates variable rate fertility maps based on your nutritional goals. Whether it's building soil, balancing nutrition, or maintaining fertility. And with full integration with John Deere Operations Center, Verify can send recommendations directly to application equipment, no matter the color. Join Verify today at Verify.com and keep your farm moving. It takes balance to be successful in farming, because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. My mom's got a new case IH tractor and it can do it all. Bail hay all day. Stay in the dark with its powerful LED lights. Hook up all the implements. Shift like a race car, steer with ease. And it can also cool my juice box. Yeah, her case IH tractor can do everything she needs it to. Looking for a tractor that can do it all? Check out caseih.com. Thanks for listening today to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio. Today we're talking about foliar wheat diseases. If you've got any questions about that or anything going on in your farm, you can give us a call here, 844-44-AG-PHD. Well, next on the show, we've got Connie Strunk with us. She is an SDSU extension plant pathologist. Connie, how are you today? I'm doing really good. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I suppose you are, since uh, as an SDSU person, you had a big football win there a couple days ago, huh? Absolutely. <laughs> I was still riding high on that. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's talk about wheat diseases. And I realize it's a little bit of a strange time of year to be talking about it, because it's going to be a long time before anybody's going to be real concerned about that in our geography. But uh, getting prepared for 2024 is there anything new and different that farmers should be looking out for in terms of wheat diseases, or is it pretty much the same thing that we've been scouting for for the last five years? A lot of it's just the same like we've been scouting for, just being on the on the lookout to realize, you know, what diseases they've had in the past, 
really take a look at, you know, the environment, the weather, what genetics that they have planted to really help reduce some of those diseases. And if conditions are conducive and we're seeing disease spread, then really needing that fungicide just to have that prevention or, you know, stopping of those plant diseases. I know last year or this past summer, you know, we saw a lot of tan spot and did see some, you know, leaf rust out there. Didn't see much or hear much about stripe rust, but did see a lot of tan spot in certain areas. There was some powdery mildew. Now, we didn't have a lot of moisture, but we did have that heat and humidity that really prompted some some disease development. You know, there's little pockets, you know, certain fields, certain areas, parts of the state that were hit a little harder with some of those foliar diseases than others. All right. Now, a couple of your first comments were, look at historic, how you've been, and then weather. But here's the concern that I have. We have had almost no rain in three and a half years. I, I mean, it's been like half normal rainfall. And certainly the last three full growing seasons in our region, we just haven't had a lot of rainfall. So where I'm going with this is for three years now, we haven't had what I would call disastrous wheat disease years in part because of the weather. And I just fear that for a lot of us as farmers, we look back to just last year and we say, well, the diseases weren't bad and it wasn't a big deal. And so sometimes we fall in the trap when we're planning for 2024, planning for this next crop. We just look at the last year and say, well, I'm not too worried about it. It'll probably be fine. And then all of a sudden we might get timely rains this next year and have a bigger disease outbreak. So I just wanted to ask you about that. If we've had three years where we haven't had a lot of disease, is the pressure that could be in the soil and the air, whatever, is it that much less that I shouldn't be worried about it? Or if we had a really good rainfall year, could we have a serious disease outbreak in our wheat crop again? A little of both. Um, when we look at having had a lot of rain, that more so we probably had higher disease inoculum potential with a lot of the diseases or a good chunk of our diseases that are residue-borne sets us up for that disease potential that next year. With it having been, you know, the drought or really drier conditions the last three years that we've really have faced, that disease inoculum potential is a little bit lower. And, and I'm talking about those that are on, like, residues, so that disease yep. potential is lower. But keeping in mind, you know, if the neighbor had had some form of a disease, whatnot, those spores, residues, whatnot, are still there within the environment, right? Well, that is usually the concern is, you know, my field is fine, but it's always the neighbor, and, and that's the problem, right? Yep. <laughs> Yep. So, yep. so so you talk about residue, and I'm just joking around here, but it, you, you talk about residue and having disease, but with these rust species, you mentioned leaf rust and especially stripe rust. That's the one that I really worry about. That one, I, I don't have to have ever had that on my farm. That could blow up from down south just this year, right? Correct. Yep. Our rust diseases, we watch for them every year. That's something that as as of this point, do not overwinter in South Dakota. That doesn't mean things couldn't change, you know, down the line. But as of yeah. right now, 
with our with our rust diseases, that's something that we have to scout for every year, mainly because they blow up that Puccinia pathway. They blow up from down south, so we really encourage watching what's happening, you know, down in the south and further states, and kind of see their disease spread to kind of anticipate if we would have an issue or not here in South Dakota. All right, I got two last questions for you. First one is this: if I was going to spend my money one way or the other, and granted, I will do it both ways on my farm. But if I was going to spend my money one way or the other, which do you think I would get a better return on? Would it be if I was using a seed treatment fungicide or a foliar fungicide? In South Dakota, where where you're working, what are you more concerned about? Is it the early season and the seed treatment, or should I save my money and spray foliar? Ooh. That's a tough one. <laughs> yep. I, I, I figured I'd just give you the tough ones here, Connie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I expect nothing less. No. Um, with the seed treatment, you know, if, if the soils have been cool, wet, and you've had a history of, you know, soil-borne pathogens, the seed treatment really helps lay out, I call it a good foundation, right, to help fend off any other pest issues, whether it's drought, too much moisture, other insects help fend off and give that plant the best foot forward, you know, really no pun intended here, best foot forward to establish to get the best yield potential that there could be. So a seed treatment is really good. I have found, especially, you know, within wheat and especially within if soils are cooler, wetter, really like to get that, you know, a good head start with the seed treatment. Foliar fungicide really depends on the year. Like for me to say, oh, it, it pencils in right now to do it, it's really hard to say if we're not getting the rain, the moisture, and not seeing the disease. At that point, you know, the, it's a, a crapshoot if it would pay or not. And so right now, I would say the seed treatment, if you have to pick one right off the off the yeah. top, would be where I put the money ahead of time. Yep. But that foliar fungicide is that game day in that toolbox decision if conditions or things change. Yeah. Yep. I agree with you. And the problem too is like when you're seeding and you say, okay, I'm not going to put a seed treatment on. Well, what if the weather turns like four days from now? We don't know if all of a sudden it's going to get cool and wet and you're going to have all these disease issues pop up. So that's the that's the real challenge with fungicide is we can't scout and then spray and rescue all the disease that we've already lost. Okay, so here's my last question for you. Flag leaf timing. We I, I had just meant I mentioned this a couple times already in the show today. Are you seeing positive gains most years when you when your South Dakota State anyway is doing fungicide trials at flag leaf timing? Is that usually a good timing for a farmer to spray? Yes, it's a good time <laughs> to spray if there is some disease development. Sure. If disease development and conditions aren't as wet or as let's say, humid to get some of that disease correlation to go, most of the time, then they could wait for the heading time frame yeah. and tackle two birds with one stone. So get that fungicide protection for scab on the wheat heads and then also tackle any of the foliar diseases that they're seeing on the leaves at that time. But if disease pressures, so if they're seeing a lot of leaf rust or stripe rust, then absolutely 
leg leave, they need to make an application at that point in time. And then also, again, most likely for scab. Yeah, it's looking at the weather, and then I often tell people, hey, look to the south of you, because for wheat, uh, obviously it was planted earlier in the south. They're probably getting some of the same diseases. If they're having a bad disease year just a little ways south of you, odds are you uh, you may get some of that on your own farm. Well, Connie, thanks a lot for the time today. Really appreciate it. No, I gave you some tough questions there, but you had some great answers. Well, thank you. Merry Christmas. <laughs> yep, Merry Christmas. All right, stay tuned. We'll get back to the Ag PhD mailbag right after this. The hardworking, independent spirit of rural America can often be isolating. It's not often discussed, but mental health issues are real. Now's the time to lead by example, talk openly, and show that a strong mind is just as important as a strong body. FMC is proud to be working toward ending the misconceptions around mental health through awareness, guidance, and action. Together, we can uproot the stigma. Insects have reigned since the dawn of time. Adapted to their surroundings. Experienced the harshest climates and toughest challenges until now. With two modes of action, Ridgeback Insecticide delivers one devastating outcome for soybean aphids, extinction from your fields. They may have lived through it all, but they won't survive this. End soybean aphids reign at ridgeback.corteva.us. Morton Buildings has served the American farmer for more than 120 years. From manufacturing our own building components to constructing your building, Morton takes pride in being the industry leader in post-frame construction by providing a quality building and exceptional customer service. A Morton is built to last for generations. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. If you understood everything on a soil test and could make your own fertility plans, do you think you could cut your farm's fertility expenses, maybe even increase your yields? Hi, I'm Darren Hefty. We want to empower you to make your own fertility decisions. That's why we're holding our Ag PhD Soils Clinic on Tuesday, January 16th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. This could be the single most important day you spend in your farming career, and it's free. So register now at agphd.com. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. Improve germination in your fields with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our unique spike design seals your seed within a firm vein of soil, providing maximum seed-to-soil contact and maximum germination. Order a set for your planter at farmshopmfg.com. Are you ready? We got the need! The need for seed treatment! Start your engines! Ready, set, Intego! Start your season strong with Intego Sweet Soybeans, Intego Fungicide Soybeans, and Intego Sweet Cereals OF from Valent USA. Ask your Valent rep about seed treatment solutions or visit valent.com slash Intego. Always read and follow label instructions. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty. 
We're broadcasting today from the Morton studio. Just talking about wheat diseases. And I, I guess the topic was foliar wheat diseases, but I'll, I'll put it this way. I'm concerned about disease always in every crop. Fortunately, we're in an area, well, fortunately or unfortunately, we're in an area that doesn't have a lot of disease because we're pretty dry. But we actually have pretty good humidity levels, especially in July and August. So late in the season for wheat, mid-season for corn and soybeans. Uh, Actually, for the last few years in July and August, we've been more humid right where we're at than Miami, Florida, which sounds insane when you think South Dakota, you probably think really dry, and we haven't had a lot of rainfall. But with our crops, we're raising tremendous crops now, and corn and soybeans, they don't just bring in water, they also kick out water. So plants every day have water going out from the leaves, and then they're trying to pull it back in too. Unfortunately, sometimes they don't pull enough back in. But anyway, the point is, whenever you walk out in a corn or soybean field, you can sense immediately that humidity that's there. And honestly, I think that's one of the biggest factors we've got, why we have such great humidity around here in July and August each year now. Well, anyway, with these wheat diseases, yes, I'm concerned about mid to late season wheat diseases, but I'm also really concerned about at plant and getting a fungicide out there because here's the other thing usually we're not just putting fungicide on it's biologicals it's insecticide we want to have other things on that seed so i'm not talking about spending a fortune but i am talking about we're already going to be treating the seed with insecticide and with a biological anyway or maybe multiple biologicals it's it does not cost that much more to throw in some fungicide along with that. So in a lot of cases, we like seeing that fungicide out there early. But here's the thing with the seed treatment. It's very common to see no gain with the seed treatment some years. And then other years, you hit the home run. You get a big gain. The problem is you just don't know when you put that seed in the ground. Is this going to be the year when I hit the home run or is it not? Is this going to be the year when it rains and diseases are bad, or is it not? I just don't know. So what we always talk about is look at your odds over time. Look at your average gain over time. But I I guess I just look at all the money we've got invested in everything else, and I kind of look at seed treatment as an insurance policy. And then foliar, Connie Strunk was exactly right. you got to pay attention to the weather. If you're getting rainfall, if the disease that that pathogen is present, whether it's been there before or moving in or whatever. I mean, those are really the two biggest factors that we're concerned about. And then obviously, do we have a susceptible variety? And then some diseases can be a lot worse than others. Stripe rust, terrible compared to common rust. So just depends on what disease is moving in and that kind of thing. But yeah, environment plays an enormous role in whether or not you are going to have a disease issue this year. But like I said a little bit earlier in the show, we have a lot of fungicide choices now, and there are some super inexpensive ones. So if you go, well, I don't know, it's not a bad disease year, I'm probably still going to encourage you to spray, but maybe go with something cheap rather than the most expensive and the best product that there is on the market. And again, we just always encourage you, try some things out in your farm, prove it to yourself, and then go from there. All right, I'm going to jump back into the Ag PhD mailbag right now. So I, I appreciated this question because this next question because we've been in the same boat on our farm. This one is from Vaughn in Ohio. 
who says, We've added too much lime over the years, and now we're saddled with high pH, like 7.5 to 7.7. It's tiled systematically, so I'm assuming that means pattern tiled, and I would consider the drainage good. Now, some spots, the, in some spots, the corn was so short this year, the ears wouldn't even go into the corn head, and other spots were 225 bushels. Soybeans in 2022 averaged 40, and in 2020, they averaged 35. He says, this is terrible. I suspect the high pH is overwhelming the acid-producing root systems of the soybeans in particular and not allowing enough iron into the plant and affecting photosynthesis. In addition, the phosphorus readings are very low. Uh, he says here, I can send in some soil sample results if needed. Yes, Vaughn, I would really like to take a look at your soil tests. We have had this happen ourselves on our farm where we overlined. So anymore, when we do soils clinics, we're talking about fertility, we talk so much about if you're going to lime especially, you've got to go with small grids or zones. Don't have a 10-acre zone or grid or a 20-acre zone or something like that. That is not good. That's what we were doing. That's how we ended up with this problem where we put too much lime on. We put lime on in areas that didn't need it. Once we started doing one-acre grids, we realized this, and it's like, oh, no. We wasted money in the lime. We over we got too much lime or you know we put lime out and didn't even need it in some areas which then drove the ph too high which then pushed our yields down so we we overspent on lime we hurt our yield cost us money there and now we're putting elemental sulfur on those high ph spots so that's typically what we do by the way vaughn is put some elemental sulfur out there 100 pounds 200 pounds depends on how heavy your soil is and stuff you'll have to kind of play around with that a little bit but here's the thing that we have learned. If we're doing that, even if the pH is up for a little while, for a few years, it doesn't hurt yield as bad if we treat it a little bit differently. And here's what I mean. If you're just going to have that pH be high and call her good and you're going to go, well, nothing I can do. It's no point in spending money out there. I'm never going to have a good crop or anything else. No, I wouldn't look at it that way. I'd say, the additional thing you need to do if your pH is high is probably put some elemental sulfur out there, okay? And again, show us your soil tests, and then I'll tell you. But that's what we do on our farm, and it works well. In addition to that, we want to make sure that every nutrient we've got is as balanced, is at the ideal levels. I mean, it's as good as it can be. So when you say low phosphorus, that is a huge thing for corn yield, soybean yield, wheat yield, I don't care what it is. So we want to make sure that our phosphorus levels are good. But then if our phosphorus levels are good, we also have to make sure that our zinc and our copper levels are good in ratio with the phosphorus. We want to make sure our potassium levels are good. And I mean, I can just go right down the list of all those things. So I, I just tell you this, do not lose hope just because your beans are suffering and your corn is suffering right now. We have proven that even though we overlimed, once we adjusted our plan a little bit, we were still able to raise some really fantastic yields, and I'm sure that you can as well. So send us your soil tests. We'll take a look at those, and uh, hopefully we can help you out a little bit more. All right, next one here is from Tom, who says, I'm curious on your thoughts on precision spraying. For instance, the new sea spray technology and things like that. What's working? What's not? Um is this something that you see could be used foliar? Could it be used in burn down? I, I mean, where do you see this fit? Okay. So, Tom, here's my number one concern. Soil residual herbicides probably need to be on every acre. I'll just go back 30 years, over 30 years ago. I was a young agronomist, and on our farm, 
I went out and scouted. There's one field in particular I can remember. As I sit here in, in the Morton studio, it's two miles north of where I sit right now. And I was out in this field looking at stuff. And I, I called my dad and I said, or actually, I shouldn't say call. I had to go talk to him because we didn't have cell phones then. But anyway, I went and talked to him and I go, hey, dad, we don't have any weeds. I, I, I literally walked all across this thing a bunch on this, uh, it's about 300 acres, and I can't find any weeds out there. And he goes, well, we're spraying it anyway. I go, what? I just told you, we don't have any weeds there. Why are we spraying? He goes, because this product has residual. Yes, it will burn stuff down, but it also has some residual. And he said, I will promise you, there will be weeds out there. You may not see them now. Maybe they're too small. Maybe they aren't up yet, but we're going to have weeds. He said, I've tried this before where I go, I look at it. It looks fine, so I don't spray. And then I get a, I got weeds later on, and I don't want that. It hurts my yield, number one. And number two, then I have higher weed pressure in the future that I have to fight often for years. So we are spraying every acre. And that's always stuck with me. And I, I, I think about that a lot when we're talking about burn down products that have no residual versus residual products. So yeah, the burn down, if all you're after is, I just want to burn down what's there today, the sand spray and that kind of technology, fine. But the problem is, in a lot of cases, we're going to want a residual herbicide that ends up going on every acre. And a lot of these burn down herbicides are getting really inexpensive. Got a lot of things like Roundup, Glufosinate, hitting all-time lows, Dicamba, 2,4-D are getting real cheap too. So a lot of the burn down things getting cheap. So I don't know. Uh, we'll see how it goes in the future. If we can justify the cost with that technology, we'll see. Stay tuned. You can count on AgroLiquid for precision crop nutrition. When you don't get all your potash down in the fall, when weather or market prices change your management strategy, or when you want to balance your fertilizer program with micronutrients, AgroLiquid is ready with the products and application flexibility you want for in-season crop nutrition and the research-proven results you need. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. You have a lot at stake when it comes to raising corn. I'm Darren Hefty. That's why on Wednesday, January 17th, we're holding a free Ag PhD corn agronomy workshop at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. We'll help you navigate all the challenges of corn production, including how to manage exploding pest populations, resistant diseases, fertility challenges, and more. It's a day packed with information. So if you want to get the most out of your corn this season, don't miss the free Ag PhD corn agronomy workshop. Register now at agphd.com. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. How can Naturals products help you raise bigger and better crops? Hi, I'm Darren Hefty. 
biologicals, or naturals as we call them, are impacting every facet of agriculture today, and that will only grow in the future. That's why we're devoting a full day to our Ag PhD Naturals Workshop, Wednesday, February 7th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. Our research team has spent years testing hundreds of Naturals products, and we want to share with you what we've learned. For more about this free event, go to agphd.com. Because the challenges you face are getting bigger every year, BASF is committed to helping with more than boots on the ground. We're committed to boots in the mud, boots on the steps of your truck, your tractor, your combine, the linoleum tiles of your coffee shop, the concrete of your co-op, the gravel in your shed. So we can listen, learn firsthand, help right now to ensure success. BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. This is Ag PhD Radio. We're right in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag. Our next question comes from Michael in Iowa, who attached some soil tests to his email. And it's two and a half acre grids, by the way, he says here. And he's applying chicken litter and is just wondering what we think overall on his fertility levels and if it's time to start variable rate applications. Okay, so just real quick, I'd say we love litter, chicken litter, and manure, compost, anything like that, as long as it's done in moderation. So what he's talking about is, uh, let's see, two tons on ground going to soybeans, three tons on ground going to corn. By the way, the the amount of salt he's getting for each ton is 118 pounds, so that's certainly not exorbitant. If we're talking two, three, even 400 pounds of salt in Iowa, I'm really not that concerned. That's probably going to be fine. However, what I don't see on his soil tests is sodium. We really like having the sodium test. And I, it's interesting. He's got a complete test here for us, except for two things, sodium and nitrogen. And I'd like to see both. With the nitrogen, sometimes we have so much carryover out of soybeans or out of corn, we don't need a lot for the next crop. Now, granted, you could lose it if there, you have all kinds of rainfall, but at least you have an idea that going in, ooh, it looks like I got a bunch of nitrogen, I wouldn't get too carried away in my preseason nitrogen applications, and then just do a pre-cidrus nitrate test, and you can always add a little more later. Anyway, other things that I noticed here, I, I just say, phos- and, and to his question about should I do variable rate, let me, let me give you a couple examples here. He's got phosphorus levels as low as on the P1 weak bray phosphorus test. So in other words, how much how much phosphorus is there today? 19 parts per million in one spot versus 66 parts per million in another spot. Well, 66, pretty decent. 19, not. So it all depends on what anyone's goals are. Here's what I do on our farm. And we're using Malik 3 phosphorus test. So that'd be similar to the P2 uh, or, or strong bray test, and he's got a lot of the strong bray tests that are 80 to 100 parts per million. I'm shooting for at least 100 parts per million. And so what we do on our farm is we do variable rate, and yeah, we use manure too, but I, I want to make sure that our phosphorus levels are up to 100 parts per million. And again, that's a malic, so it's a lot higher than what you would you would need in a P1 or an Olson test. But I want everything to be 100. I want my zinc to be in ratio with that, so I want my zinc to be 10. Well, um, for for zinc here, that's just another example. I see one spot where it's, uh, let's see, five and a half 
0.56 for zinc and another spot that's 1.2. Well, 1.2, I can almost guarantee you, yields getting hurt there. You've got to get that, that zinc level roughly 10 to 1 with the phosphorus. So 10 to 1 ratio of phosphorus to zinc. And then a couple last things. Potassium overall looks pretty good, and I'm sure it's because the the use of litter over the years. But there are spots like here's one spot: 2.1% base saturation K, and only 171 parts per million. And right next to it, it's 5.1% base saturation K and 311 parts per million. So yes, variable rate would help. I, I mean, that's what I would do. A couple last nutrients I'll mention. Copper, really low, one part per million or less for the most part. That's got to get up there. You want that at least two, if not three. Boron, with your calcium levels that you have in your soil, roughly 2,000 parts per million on calcium, you could certainly bump that, that boron to at least a uh, 1.5 to 2 parts per million. And right now, you got a lot that's a half a part per million. So those are just some things for you to consider. And then the last thing I guess I'd say, I like the Malik 3 test for manganese. I feel it's a lot more accurate. Uh, you got a DTPA test here, and it's fine. Uh, you know, it's kind of the standard thing that a lot of people run. It's just I, I don't know for sure if you have enough manganese in that soil or not with the DTPA test. So I'm not too worried about manganese, though, with this particular test because, or, or this particular farm because of the litter, the use of the litter. In that litter, there is manganese, and so roughly for every ton, he's getting a half a pound of manganese. So if he had three tons... That's 1.5 pounds. Well, that's going to be, I mean, that, that, that's pretty decent. So I, I'm not super worried about the manganese, but it's just something you could potentially look at in the future. All right, next question comes from Jacob. He says, I was looking at your website at the winter workshops, and I came across your fertilizer calculator. This is a great tool. The only downfall is now I've realized what I need for zinc, manganese, and copper. Um, where can I source these from? Uh, Jacob, just ask around a little bit. There are a lot of fertilizer dealers out there who carry things like zinc sulfate, manganese sulfate, copper sulfate. I know when we first started fertilizing on our own farm, we had to make a couple more phone calls than we normally would because a lot of, well, pretty much every fertilizer dealer, it seems like, has N, P, and K. But to start looking at the micronutrients, not as common, not at every fertilizer dealer, but I'm I'm certain that you can find some within 30 miles of yourself. All right, next one here is from Troy from Iowa. He says, guys, are you going to have your winter workshops available on live stream for us Ag PhD Insider Magazine subscribers? Yes, Troy, we will. Uh, anyway, he says here, for those of us with livestock in the winter, it's tough to get away and being able to watch it from home after and before chores was just awesome last year. If at all possible, please do that again. Many of us would love it. Uh, also, he says another option would be to find a building in South Florida as it would be much easier to convince my wife to be gone a few days. She could sit on the beach or pool uh, with a margarita. As much as I would love a South Dakota pheasant hunt mid-January if we're going to get away from the farm, my wife loves warm places. In all seriousness, you guys have an incredible setup there, and I enjoy making it when I can. Troy, appreciate the comments. I'm with you. I do not like cold weather. I don't like it when it's a blizzard half the time, it seems like, in the middle of the winter when we're trying to do something. But um, I January, actually, believe it or not, is not that bad because that's the month that we get the least amount of precip. We only have, on average, one total inch of precip in the month of January, and it's usually so cold that 
the ice doesn't even stay on the roads. The ice literally evaporates off the roads because it's so cold. <laughs> and people from down south have no idea what I'm talking about here. But trust me, when the temperature hits about minus 10, minus 20, um, inside our facility, it's still beautiful. And the roads will also be nice because the ice can't even survive those super cold temps. All right. Uh, next one here is from Sandy. She says, in the northeast, we have thistle and Canada thistle. Uh, so I assume some kind of maybe biennial or something. Uh, and, and then Canada, which is a perennial, spreading rapidly in our fields. Any suggestions on dealing with these weeds? Uh, also, we do have a third weed called wild parsnip that's terrible as well, and it's spreading fast. All right, so Sandy, if you could just respond to us and let me know what crop we're talking about here, because, yeah, it really varies on, on the crop and on what we would recommend. Let me first say wild parsnip usually is not that difficult to stop compared to Canada thistle because wild parsnip is only a biennial, has a two-year life cycle. So there are a lot of things that we can hit wild parsnip with. With Canada thistle, I'll put it this way. What we really, really prefer is if you can spray before or uh, before planting or after harvest with a very high rate, the highest labeled rate of Roundup. And don't do tillage in advance. And here's the reason why. We want to keep that root system all connected. If you can do that, then you can hit a high dose of that Roundup into the plant and get it all through the extensive root system, kill the perennial roots, all those rhizomes, permanently. So that's what we're after. That's our goal. There are other good products, Stinger, Tordon, Milestone. Uh, there are a lot of different thistle products out there, but it all depends on the crop that you're in. So again, let us know what crops you're talking about or crop, and then we can hopefully give you a little better advice. All right. Then we got our friend from Argentina, Diego, had a couple of things here. Uh, First of all, he says, I got a question about herbicide applications. Some custom applicators are spraying burn down herbicide at night because of high wind and high temps during the day. I don't think they work as well at night. What do you think? Uh, Diego, South Dakota State University did a trial on this. It's probably 20 years ago now. And what they found, oh, by the way, they had plenty of volunteers to spray at midnight because it's a college campus. Not a lot of volunteers to spray at 6 in the morning, but lots at midnight. <laughs> but anyway, what they found is if basically you take out moisture, in other words, dew, as long as there's no dew on that plant, um, the results usually are fine. Now, there are some weeds that aren't going to, you're not going to get as good a control, like velvet leaf is going to droop more at night than it is in the daytime. So there are some weeds like that, but for the most part, it's not too bad. Uh, so I'm not too worried, but yeah, it all, de all depends on your situation. So uh, his other thing here is he said he's testing uh, something for NP and K moisture and electrical conductivity in an instant. So he's uh, testing this out and just said, hey, it's all beta, but it's very promising. Diego, I'm with you. I wish we could have something so we'd have instantaneous readings. Hopefully that turns out good for you. Let us know. Well, thanks for listening today. And uh, before we go, just want to say thanks to my sister Janelle running the controls. Appreciate that. Thanks to everybody who called in. We'll see you again tomorrow.